What's up, folks? Welcome to the 27th episode of the Next Bite Podcast. In today's show, we'll be talking about a nano-engineered armor that can stop any bullet, a way that NASA is using balloons to explore Venus, and a way that we can improve the screens in your phone so the battery lasts longer. Roll the intro music. I'm Daniel. And I'm Forbode. And this is the Next Byte Podcast. Every week, we explore interesting and impactful tech and engineering content from Weevolver.com and deliver it to you in bite-sized episodes that are easy to understand, regardless of your background. All right, folks, let's hop into our first article which is nano-engineered armor, or shields. And it's coming out of uh, research from MIT, Caltech, and ETH Zurich. Uh, the lead researcher on it is named Carlos Portela. And basically what they're doing is creating a lightweight armor that provides a similar or even better level of protection as steel, Kevlar, aluminum, all these other impact-resistant materials that we use to armor spacecraft. We use them to protect human beings, and they're using carbon to do it. And basically, this is actually. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. I was just gonna say this is kind of a good connection to uh, a, a previous episode we had recently, where we were talking about space trash and how we like really need armoring to stop it from impacting spacecrafts. This sounds like it would be a great application for that. Yeah, well, and there's a lot of places where you want to armor something, and almost every single time you want it to be lighter and more flexible, and that's mm-hmm. what they think they can achieve with this carbon material. And, you know, carbon is, you know, in some forms, it's diamond, in some forms, it's graphene. But, you know, in those forms, it is one of the strongest materials known to man. So they're trying to find a way to use this strength found in carbon and use that as an impact resistant material to armor and protect the things that we care about. Um, And so the way that they did it is basically by 3D printing a polymer that's similar to carbon uh, using a technique called lithography. And then they cure it oh. in, a, in a furnace and turn it into this carbon carbon strong armored material. Oh, th- this article is perfect for you, man. Why, why don't you explain what lithography is first of all? Okay, so for people that don't understand or don't know this, uh, lithography is a form of three D printing. And I actually worked at a company called Form Labs, which is at the forefront of using this lithography technique in uh, benchtop three D printing. But what they've been doing in this research specifically at the Caltech facility is doing lithography at the nano, nano, nano scale, like very, very small. And the way that lithography works is you take a resin that is a liquid, you know, it some type of polymer that, you know, it kind of looks like a syrup. It's this goopy resin that is, is a liquid at room temperature. Um, and it's photosensitive, which means that when light hits it, and in this case, a very, very small laser that's only two photons wide, when that light hits it, the energy excites the uh, liquid resin and it cures into a solid plastic. So basically what they're doing is taking liquid, hitting it with a laser, and it turns into plastic at the tiny spot where the laser hit it. And by doing this with an ultra-thin laser, they can change which parts turn to solid and which ones stay liquid. And you can lift the solid out of this vat of liquid and you're left with a solid structure wherever the laser touched. So they're doing this to create a super complex geometry of this polymer. Uh, You know, I think they call it a tetrakaidecahedron, which is basically... Oh, that is... It's a tongue tongue twister. twister. But if you check 
our show notes, click the link in the article. You can see a photo of it. It basically looks like a very, very complicated truss structure. So a lot of different beams okay. connected to each other. Um, you know, imagine if you were to create armor out of a lot of little tiny trusses. That's exactly what this is. Okay, so so let, let's follow the path of how this thing is made, right? You do the 3D printing, you pull it out, and now you have a plastic piece of the structure. Then you're taking it and putting it in furnace yeah is that what you so said? it's it okay when it comes out of that printer you've got plastic that's not the super mm-hmm. strong material that we want um we want the carbon we want just the carbon so what they do is they you know this plastic is an organic polymer so it's based mostly in carbon and hydro and hyd- hydrogen and oxygen so that this organic polymer has three different types of atoms in it mostly carbon and what they do is they take it in a vacuum furnace and they heat it up really, really hot. And basically what happens is the hydrogen and the oxygen burn off. So what you're left with is, you know, somewhere between 90 and 99% carbon is left in this structure. So it's, you know, carbon's pretty strong. It's pretty brittle. It would be impossible for you to try and create this structure using just That's carbon. What I was say. But when they yeah. use this 3D printing method where they make this truss structure and then they carbonize it after that's what it's called carbonizing. When you put it in the oven, they can burn off the other parts that make it possible for them to manufacture that way. And they get this complex carbon structure that you couldn't otherwise achieve. That totally makes sense. That That's one of the things I was skeptical about when he started talking. I was like, huh, if they're doing carbon and they want the strength, they're probably going at the nano level. And if they're doing that, manufacturing is not going to be easy, but this makes a little bit more sense. And so let's talk about the brittle portion, right? Is it the architecture of this structure that's allowing it to like kind of bounce and absorb some some of the energy of let's say a projectile hitting it? Yeah, exactly. So carbon is known for being very very brittle. Another form of carbon that you know a lot of us are very uh, familiar with is graphite, and that's the stuff that's like the lead in your pencil. And if you've ever right. tried to write with a pencil, you know that the lead breaks all too often because it's very very brittle. Um, but what they managed to do by using this new manufacturing method is instead of making a solid chunk of carbon that's super brittle, what they did is they created you know this geometry that's ultra light, and it also has just tiny trusses of carbon, and that actually makes the overall structure more bendable, more resilient than if you were to use a solid chunk of it. That you know the way I like to think of it is like um, when it's super super brittle, a material super brittle. It's like a tortilla chip. And if you try to put any force on this tortilla chip, it's just going to shatter. But if you use the raw tortilla that's kind of soft and flexible and bendable, you can press on it and it doesn't break. So that's what they've done is they found a way to make this usually super brittle material a little bit more resilient, which makes it great for doing, you know, the stuff that we want to by, you know, impact resistance, making sure that bullets don't pierce through, making sure that if you hit it with a hammer, it doesn't break. That's exactly what they want to do. What? What brand of tortillas hurt you so bad that you feel like you had to bring it up? Is it Tostitos? You want me to call up Tostitos and talk to them about it? Yeah, well, you know. They just make your dip fall? It, it's great to have a brittle chip. You you bite into it, cracks, it's perfect. But um, that's not what you want when you're making bulletproof armor. You don't want it to just shatter. So I, I, I mean, I agree. But I just felt like there was a lot of passion in the tortilla chip segment. All I'm saying. <laughs> but no, that, that actually does sound pretty interesting. So they they made this um structure 
that they think is going to be very resilient. How are how are they testing a nanostructure to see if it can actually absorb a projectile? Well, so the way that they tested this is actually really, really interesting. And they also came up with an interesting discovery afterwards. So I'm excited to talk about it. Basically, what they did is they made a mini cannon where they mm-hmm. shine light behind a tiny projectile and were able to create a ball of plasma that propelled a little, little tiny bullet towards their nano armor. Um, oh, that's cool. At up to 1,100 meters that's per second, cool. which is over three times the speed of sound. So like similar energy wow. levels as we're talking as if you were shot at with a bullet from a gun. So they're doing basically similar to shooting it out of a gun, but they made a very, very nanos- nanoscale tiny gun that uses light to propel projectiles. And basically what they found out in their results is at the same scale, you know, for the same weight and at the same size, this carbon armor performed better than any Kevlar does, than any aluminum or steel, the other types of things that we use to armor and protect ourselves. This one's lighter and stronger at, you know, protecting from these like little, little tiny particles. So it's, they they view it as the first step of testing using nanostructures as armor. But what they also found is a law that might define the way that we test nano armor in the future. And it actually okay. relates back to this thing called the Buckingham Pi theorem, which I don't know. You and I Sounds took delicious. some physics classes, some astronomy. Basically, this Buckingham Pi theorem is an old theorem that's used to predict meteor behavior when it impacts a planet. So I've never heard about it. Basically, what it does is it allows people to, you know, take the mass and the size and the structure of different and the density of different meteors and different planets and predict um, when a meteor hits it at a certain speed, whether a chunk of the planet will break off. Um, Basically for us on earth, it allows us to predict whether or not a meteor can cause catastrophic failure of our planet or not. But what's interesting is they're talking about really, really big things, right? A huge planet, a huge meteor that would able to cause catastrophic failure of the earth. But they found that the same principle applies when they're doing this thing at the nanoscale, so small that we can't even see it. They found that the same principle applies. So what they said is, you know, their experiments aligned very strongly with the Buckingham Pi theorem. And now they're able to, you know, predict what certain types of density might work, what different types of geometry might work without having to actually, you know, warm up and fire off their nano cannon. They can use the Buckingham Pi theorem to do it. So they're hoping that this relationship also proves true for other types of nano engineering in the future and they were just one of the first ones to recognize it that, that's really cool like they're basically setting a framework for future investigation of nanostructures as, as armoring and shielding that, that's really fascinating um but you know as strong as they are i don't think nanostructured shields can protect anyone from the surface on venus because that's where we're going with our next article article two is uh, Balloon detection of Venus earthquakes and seismic activity. So you, you might be, again, thinking, why? Why are we doing this? Why would we want to take a balloon to Venus just to see what's happening with the earthquakes? Well, again, as usually happens with these articles, I am learning something new every time. And Dan, did you know that almost everything we know about the Earth itself, like how it cools, where populations have gathered and accumulated over time, is actually from seismic activity. That's interesting. Like seismic activity being earthquakes, volcanoes, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. 
like how our planet is cooling and heating and things like that, that mostly comes from seismic seismic well, activity. I guess that makes sense because, you know, we don't have an X-ray machine big enough to put the earth in it. We haven't dug holes all the way through the earth to ex- inspect mm-hmm. what's inside. But, you know, by looking at how things interact on the crust, um, we might be able to get a peek and on how the earth works and interacts on the inside. So that makes sense. Um, and I imagine and like exactly we're right. trying to do the same thing on Venus with these balloons. Yeah. And uh, again, the question is why Venus? So it turns out that Venus was once like very hospitable and it, it could have had life on it. But now it's turned into this like nightmare of a planet that is so hot on the surface that it can melt lead, you know, lead that we use for shielding and nuclear reactors. It It is got a pressure so high that it will crush a submarine on it and it has sulfuric acid rain it so sounds this like that an wants... incredibly hellish environment compared to <laughs> what we consider a hospital environment here on earth so i imagine we're trying to figure out how and why it got that way so maybe we can keep earth from turning into venus because i don't want to live on you're right atmosphere like that I don't think anyone does or anyone could, yeah. but you're absolutely right. That's 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 the goal here is to understand why it evolved the way it did. And we think the seismic activity will be able to give us that glimpse. So we've already established that the surface of Venus is absolutely hellish and we can't put the usual equipment that we have down on the ground to start studying the seismic activity. So how are we going to go about it? Well, fun fact, seismic activity causes vibrations and it gives off sound waves. And sound waves will cause changes in the pressure in the atmosphere. So if you have a tool like a barometer that can gauge the pressure in the air, you should technically be able to get the changes that are happening at the ground level with the seismic activity okay, so like if you're using a balloon. Every time there's an earthquake, there's huge sound waves and ripples that go through the ground. And those, those are mm-hmm. the ones that we typically focus on because we're the ones that like to stand on the ground and sit on it. And we feel the earth shake and we're like, wow, this is crazy. But it also creates ripples in the air is what you're saying. And we can measure the earthquake by looking at the pressure in the air. That's right. So the this was a joint effort between NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a bunch of students at uh, Caltech. So they had this idea, but obviously they needed to test it out. And in July of 2019, California actually had a series of major earthquakes that resulted in 10,000 aftershocks over the next six weeks. So they had an opportunity to test out their system to see if it worked or not. So they deployed these balloons. They had these instruments on them that gauged the pressure changes in the atmosphere. And on July 22nd, they picked up a 4.2 magnitude earthquake that was 50 miles away from the balloon that they were, they were testing with. So they, they were able to prove that this system works. Now, NASA has actually greenlighted two missions to Venus between 2028 and 2030. One of them is called the Veritas mission. It's going to study the planet's surface. And the other one is called the Da Vinci Plus, and that one's going to study the atmosphere. The idea is that they'll be able to send balloons with one of these missions, or maybe even both of them. And we know for a fact that balloons will reach Venus and be able to operate as well as we could hope because of the 1985 Soviet Vega missions that did the exact same thing. They just sent balloons there to see if they could blast, okay. and they did. So we've known for you know, 30, 35 years or so that we can put balloons on Venus, and now we've mm-hmm. finally discovered that we can use balloons to measure earthquakes. So we're going to put those two pieces of knowledge together and try to study what's going on inside Venus by putting balloons there. That's right. And hopefully we won't get sulfuric rain on 
yeah. on the Earth I'm, anytime soon. I'm looking forward to whatever discoveries they have to hopefully prevent Earth from becoming like Venus. Yeah, can't record podcasts on Venus. No, no podcasts on Venus. Well, whatever device you're listening on, take a look, take a second and just look at the screen or look at a TV near you or look at your computer. What you're looking at most likely is called an OLED display, organic LED. And that's going to take us to our third article. We're talking about a way to increase the efficiency of these OLED screens, um, which will improve the battery life and the overall function of your devices. So this is coming out of University of Michigan, Professor Jay Guo. Basically, um, all these devices that we have that use OLED screens or OLED screens, they're actually not that efficient. They're much more efficient than the previous LCDs that we were using, but still over 80% of the light produced by this screen gets trapped somewhere in the process and it reflects around and instead of coming out out of the screen perpendicularly to your eyes where you can see, it ends up reflecting sideways inside the screen and it never makes it out and it ends up dissipating into other materials. So what what's causing the trapping? Well, if and this is kind of going to take us into a dive of how an OLED works. So okay. an OLED has a cathode at the bottom and it's got a bunch of organic materials underneath and basically a transparent anode on top of those and then glass. And what this stack adds up to is basically um, we've got a, a layer of organic molecules that emit light when they get excited by electricity. So okay. different types of materials emit different colors of light when they're excited by electricity. So that's how we can get these different colored pixels for our screen. And what it does is these OLED screens pass electricity through these organic molecules and let them light up. And then the electricity gets passed back to the cathode and it does the whole thing over again. But the issue there is all this stack of materials, except for the very bottom where you're emitting light, they all have to be transparent and they also have to be conductive so that the electrons can pass back through, but the light can make it all the way out through the screen into your eyes. So these OLED screens, they have somewhere between five and some of them have like up towards 10 layers, different layers of different materials. And if these materials have different refractive indices, which basically means how much they bend the light when the light passes through it, a lot of it gets lost. So oh. this team from the University of Michigan I see. took and basically inspected every single one of these layers and see if they can do anything to... Uh, reduce the amount of light that's getting bent to the sides and getting lost in the sides and replacing it with similar materials that are transparent and also conductive, but can allow the light to pass through perpendicularly and not get lost somewhere inside the screen instead of passing out to your eyes. So they had two main ways of doing that. The first of which is there's this material called indium tin oxide, ITO, and it's used a lot in solar panels and it's used a lot in these OLED screens. And what they managed to do was replace this ITO, which uh, refracts about 40% of the light. So 40% of the light was getting bent out of shape and not passing through to your eye at this one layer. Um, They were able to replace that with a very, very, very thin layer of silver, so thin that it's transparent, five nanometers thick. Um, You know, that's like one two hundred thousandth of a sheet of paper. Um, And so very, very thin sheet of silver that's thin enough that light still passes through it but it's also still conductive they were able to swap out that ito which led to a 40 percent increase in light liberation is what they call it so the light's being emitted they're liberating it letting it come out free so it passes out to your eyes that was one way wait 
Hold up. Uh, I want to clarify something. ITO is transparent. Yeah. This thin silver is transparent. Also transparent. What what did the replacement bring here? What what is the secret sauce that came with the silver? Okay, so basically the silver doesn't bend light as much as ITO does. So the oh. light is passing through it perpendicularly and it bends mm, a lot less okay. of the light than the ITO does. So less of the light ends up bouncing around sideways and more of it passes out perpendicularly to your eye. So you're basically optimizing the channel where the light is flowing and, and minimizing how much is getting yeah, bounced. Yeah, you want this light that to pass sense. out through the screen into your eye and none of it get bouncing around, you know, inside the screen instead of being displayed to you. And another that way sense. that a lot of the light was getting trapped is there was an air gap uh, between all these electronics and the glass in your screen. And what they did is they added a liquid that has the exact same index of refraction which basically means if you were to dip glass in this liquid, it would be completely transparent. You wouldn't be able to detect that it's there at all. So they were able to close the gap between these electronics and the glass at the top to make sure that less of the light bent. All this to say, you know, it's a lot of technical, a lot of technical stuff, but what they did is they, there's a stack of, you know, seven to 10 different layers. They inspected every single layer to make sure that they could improve the amount of light that's being passed out through them. And what it ended up at the very end was a 20% brighter screen. And you think like, why do we care about the screen being brighter? Is it just so that it fries my eyes more when I have the brightness up all the way at night? No, it's because when you have a screen that's 20% brighter, that means you can use less electricity to power that screen. So um, it's more efficient. You can have a longer lasting battery, a phone or a screen or a computer or TV that doesn't heat up as much and last longer, all because they just took a very, very close look at all these different layers and made sure that they were optimized. This sounds like such a small change, but when you think about it, unlike the larger scale, like you mentioned, if you're looking at a screen right now, chances are it's OLED, especially like if it's like more high-end tech. And with a 20% increase in the brightness, you're going to have, like you said, lower power consumption across millions and millions of users. And devices that last longer across millions and millions of users. So you're like decreasing the environmental impact of electronics by, gosh, I don't even know how much. That's that's incredible. And it, it makes more sense to me then to go buy that OLED TV that's hanging on the wall, um, you know, that costs way too much at Best Buy when you're looking at it. It makes more sense to buy oh, that. Oh, you don't need to tell me twice. If you yeah. know that TV won't consume as much electricity and also that it'll last much longer than the existing ones. So that's, you know, something that makes this technology more accessible to people and also wastes a lot less energy. Great. Wow. That's incredible. Well, I think this is actually a good spot to wrap up the episode. We want to thank everyone for listening. As always, if you've enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, the more people that listen, the more we can get this info out and build a bigger community. We really appreciate you guys supporting us. And again, if you enjoy this episode, if you enjoy any of the episodes, take a second, go on Apple Podcasts and just leave us a review. Once you do that, take a screenshot and DM it to us so that we can actually shout you out. We want to make sure that we're reciprocating the love that you guys are giving us. Thank you, everyone, and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace. That's all for today. The Next Byte Podcast is produced by Weevolver. And to learn more about the topics we discussed today, visit Weevolver.com. If you enjoy this episode, 
please review and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of your favorite platforms. I'm Forbode. And I'm Daniel. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.